Uh, good morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here, and uh, I read a story this past week that really captured this idea of what it means to be redeemed. And it goes like this. There, there was a, a city along the shore of a great lake. And in this city lived a little boy who loved water and he loved sailing. And uh, so much so that him and his father worked together for a matter of months making this beautiful model ship, this, this beautiful boat. And they would take it out along the shoreline and they'd set it in the water and uh, it was watertight so it, it sailed fine. But one day a huge gust of wind came and it pulled the boat out into the middle of this great lake and out of sight completely. And so the boy went home completely distraught. He was destroyed. What he had worked so hard on was now gone. And in vain, he spent the following weeks and months walking along the shore of the lake, trying to see if maybe his boat came to shore, but to no avail. Then one day, as he is walking through the town, he sees his boat there in a store window. And he runs inside and he approaches the store owner and says, I made that boat. That boat is mine. And the store owner looks at him and says, well, son, um, I paid good money to a local fisherman for that boat. And if you want that boat, you're actually going to have to pay for it. And so the boy went out and he did anything and everything he possibly could to raise that money. And he came back with the money and he handed it to the store owner with delight and a smile on his face. And the owner handed him the boat. And there he stood holding the boat and he said these words, Twice now you are mine, because I made you and because I bought you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing hope we have. That we can stand today and say, I am redeemed. And it has nothing to do with us, it has everything to do with what you have done for us. And I pray that as we continue, God, our time of worship together, as we open up your word, that your spirit would move in each of our hearts. God, you know exactly what each person brings in here today. You know exactly what each of us need to hear today to be encouraged, to be lifted up, to to maybe be confronted with sin that we need to confess before you. Whatever it is, God, I just pray your spirit moves mightily in our minds and in our hearts through the power of your word. And so thank you for the honor and privilege that we have to gather and the hope that we declare that we are redeemed. Heavy way now we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, the story is such a great illustration, right? That God both made us and he has purchased us. This is the hope of the gospel. God has given us both physical life and breath in our existence, but he gives us spiritual life through the resurrected Christ that we now have an eternal hope and eternal future. If you've been with us, you know that we're teaching through the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus through the, the epistle Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way there right now. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in front of you, hopefully in uh, one of the little uh, holders under the chairs, and, and you can grab one. That's also a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, take that. It is, it is for you, um, and uh, we would gladly have you have that. But uh, as we're in Ephesians, we've, we've titled this study, Identity, Identity, Becoming Who We Are in 
Christ. Because as we read through Ephesians, we see the, the mysterious reality of the Christian life. And it's this, is that God has declared you and I, if our faith is in Christ, to be saints. You're a saint. You're a child of God. You are chosen. You are loved. You're adopted. That is, that is a fact about who you are if you are in Christ. This cannot change. And yet, if you're anything like me, you know every day you fall woefully short of who God has declared you to be. There are things you do, things you think that you say, well, I don't know. I really don't know if I'm a child of God. I really just didn't act like a saint in the way I talked to my spouse. Like, I don't know if I can swallow that today. But these are truths that we see are declared about you if you are in Christ. And it's not about your performance. It's about Christ's performance in your place. It's about the perfection of Christ that has been bestowed upon you. Not about what you're able to do to make yourself right with God. And so, again, this this interesting dynamic that we are becoming who we are. It's a process that unfolds over a lifetime. So again, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to study through verses 7 through 10 today. Paul continues. He says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, one thing I want us to recognize not only about these verses, but the entirety of Ephesians chapter 1 is is how incredibly Christ-centric all of this is. While it declares our identity, it clearly and abundantly and more so declares that it's all because of Christ. It's all because of him. And in these, just in these short few verses, there are eight references to God's work and will, right? It says, in him, through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, making known the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth to unite all things in him. I'm tired. But it's all about God. It's all about who he is and what he has done. And that's what we see is that the hope of the Christian is only found in the reality of God's initiating plan, purpose, and provision for our salvation. Our life, our hope, everything we have is found in him and in him alone. I love how Hebrews 12 says that Jesus is both the founder or the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? He starts it, he establishes it, and he is faithful to see it through to the end. Is that good news for you this morning? It should encourage you that the God who bought you is also going to see you through to the very end. He is not going to give up on you. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to see Paul continue to praise God both for the present significance of our redemption, but also the future value of what is to come. So let's start by looking at Paul praising God for our present redemption. Verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Have. It's ours. It's something we already possess. Okay, And this word redemption to the minds of that time, this is a, a Greco-Roman time period. And, and the mind of, of a Greco-Roman at the time, when they heard the word redemption, they would immediately connected that to slavery. 
And slavery of, our, of their day uh, was, was just, it was a normal thing. And slaves at that time were not considered as people. They were considered as property. Can you imagine that? So they had no human rights. They had no governmental system that they could go and point to and say, no, I have rights as a human being. They didn't. And so for a slave in that day to find redemption, it would mean that someone else would have to pay a ransom price on their behalf. Someone would have to come and pay for them. It wasn't something they could do themselves. And this idea of redemption, this concept, it rarely, if ever, happened. And while you and I may be sitting here today and we say, well, I'm not a slave. I'm not in bondage. Nobody owns me. The reality of Scripture is that all of us are born into this world spiritually enslaved to sin. That is the, the default setting of the human being and our experience and our existence. And all of us are in desperate need of someone else paying the ransom price on our behalf. And here's what Jesus has declared in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. He says this, I tell you the truth that everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Has anyone in here sinned? Raise your hand if you've ever sinned. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Okay. So if you've sinned, you're a slave to sin. Okay. We've, we've sinned long before we can even remember we were sinning, right? Like I have little kids and they're just little sinners. Okay. And they don't even know it. It's just instinctive to them. But this is what Jesus says. A slave is not a permanent member of a family, but a son is a part of the family forever. And so if the son has set you free, you are truly free. No longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. Forever in God's family. And if that's you this morning, if if your faith is in Christ, if you've looked upon the cross and you said, yes, I need that, I need forgiveness, I need grace, I need hope, if you trusted in the gospel, you can say with confidence, I am redeemed. Because it's not about what you've done. It's about what he has done in your place. And you are now free. And this freedom we see from the the next part of verse 7 is as it comes through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a part of the redemption process. Verse 7b, it says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So trespasses is just another word for sin. And here's what we need to realize is that sin is not just the things we do wrong. It's not just the ways that we go about actively doing things that are immoral, okay? Or thoughts that we have are immoral. Sin is also the good things that we neglect to do. You know, oftentimes you just, oh, I feel bad because I did that. But how many times you say, oh gosh, I really missed an opportunity to do good here. So when we look at it this way, I mean, the depth of our sin is hard to even comprehend, right? We can be sinning and not even knowing that we're sinning. That's a reality because it's like, well, we're supposed to do all this good stuff and not supposed to do all this other stuff, and yet we, we fail at all of it. And yet here's a declaration that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That freedom is complete. Let me say that word again. Complete forgiveness of all of your sin, past, present, future, active, passive, all of it. 
One person thinks that's good news. (laughs) I hope the rest of you are saying that in your heart. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's how far. He doesn't see you anymore as a worthless sinner. He sees you as a son and as a daughter. Spiritual redemption requires forgiveness, a release and a pardon from everything we've ever done, everything we will ever do, and the guilt and shame that comes along with it. Jesus took it upon himself, bearing it at the cross, shedding his blood in our place. And here's the interesting dynamic about the Christian life, and you know what I'm talking about if you walked with Jesus for a while, is that while we're completely forgiven, we also are called to constant confession. That's just like, just like, oh yeah, I get that. I asked myself the question earlier, okay, if we're totally forgiven, why do we, why do we need to constantly be confessing our sin? That's a good question, right? I'm glad you asked. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. That confession of our sin, that's, that's ongoing, that's present tense, active. In James, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This is the life of the Christian. So again, why do we need to constantly confess if we're totally forgiven, if everything's bought and paid for? Here's why. God doesn't want a day to go by that you and I forget what he has done for us. Praise God. Every single day, that you and I see how far we fall short is a chance for us to turn our eyes back to the cross. A chance for us to look back at our Savior and our King and say, thank you. And if you think of confession, not as this like, oh, I got to go get myself clean now, right? We think of confession as, I'm just agreeing with God about what he says is right and true. We can be confessing as we're driving down the road, Right? And when we align our minds and our hearts with God, says, I'll meet you there. I'll be there. That's what we do with our present battle of sin. It just reveals that we constantly need the gospel. And here's the thing. For the Christian, you never move beyond the gospel. It's not like, okay, I got the gospel, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go beyond it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going on to something else. I love Tim Keller. He says the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Zs. It's the entirety. There's not a day that goes by that you can't say, I need the gospel. And that we then once again turn our eyes to Jesus. You know, many of us, uh, I, I think there's probably for all of us one or two things that we would not get up here and share before everyone as far as something we've done in our past. And even right now, as I say that, you're probably thinking of one or two things you've done in your life that is like, can that be forgiven? I knew better. I purposely walked into that one. I planned it. That was bad. Anyone have those skeletons? And here's the power of forgiveness is that God's grace is big enough to cover it all. 
And check this out as we continue in verse 7. It says, we have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. It means to provide in abundance, to provide more than enough. This is what God's grace has done for you and I if we are in Christ. Just, he just covered us. We're drowning in it. It's a provision of a generous and loving God that we did nothing to deserve, but something that he freely gave us. And grace, by its very definition, is a free gift. It is a gift. What do you do to receive a gift? You take it. Right? And here's the thing. As we say, hey, we're, we're saved by grace alone. We, we believe that. It is only by the grace of God in which we are saved. And yet... Grace has power in the present. We aren't just saved by grace. We're actually sustained by grace every single day of our lives. Listen to this in Hebrews 4.16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That tells us that, A, grace is what enabled us to come before the throne of God in the first place. But grace is also something he gives us every day as we approach him and he sustains us through it. Think of it like insulin for a diabetic. If you have diabetes or if you know someone with diabetes, right, most of the time when you find out you're, you're like close to dying because your, your body's shutting down, your blood sugar spike for a long time unchecked, and, and, and you're starting to shut down. And so you rush to the, the emergency room and they give you a shot of insulin and okay, you stabilize. Okay, I'm saved now. But if you're a diabetic, you take shots of insulin every single day. And if you don't, your blood sugar continues to spike and it does all sorts of wacky things to your body. And here's the deal. Insulin's an outside source. You're not creating it yourself. It's the same with grace. You and I can't go and and produce our own grace. Like, oh, I'm just going to go give myself some grace today. It's not within us. It's it's not something we conjure up within ourselves. It's something that God bestows upon us. It's something that he continues to supply us with one day at a time. Grace saves us and grace sustains us. And just like a diabetic, if you stopped taking your insulin, you wouldn't die maybe immediately, but slowly you will. And slowly, your blood sugar again goes through the roof. It can lead you into a coma or death. And similarly, the Christian life is like this. If we stop coming before the throne of grace, if we stop asking God for fresh grace in the day, in the moment, our souls are going to shrivel. We're going to have spiritual consequences to that. And the life and the joy is just going to get sucked out of us. Because we're not drawing from his well. But here's what's so crazy about grace. So you may come and say, man, I've done a horrible job (laughs) this week of coming before the throne of grace. I have not done so. I don't even know if I prayed this week. What's wrong with me? His grace is big enough for that. His grace covers that. 
His grace will still lead you home even when you fail to draw upon it for present power. This is why I think many preachers have a hard time preaching grace. <laughs> just like, wait, really? You sure about that? Like that, that just sounds a little too good. That can't be right. You're saying I'm covered? Yes, you are. But here's the deal. Paul had people in his day and age that tried, tried to twist and contort grace to be something that it wasn't. And in Romans chapter 6, uh, there's, there, Paul is teaching and, and he's confronting this, this false idea where people are running around saying like, great idea, let's just go sin as much as we possibly can because that'll just show how big God's grace is. That's what they're thinking, right? They're like, hey, let's just continue to sin and the grace will be so much bigger and, and everyone will marvel at how big God's grace is, at what sin it can cover. And Paul's response to that, I love it. I'm going to paraphrase it. But he says, are you crazy? That's his response. Are you crazy? Like, how in the world are you going to abuse the grace of God? In fact, why would you even want to do that? He bled and died in your place so that you could be reunited with him. And now you're going to continue in the ways that separated you from him in the first place? That's nonsense. Why in the world would you stay in your sin when you can walk in the light? Just, once again, just an affirmation of the corruption of the human heart, right? Like, just trying to, like, justify our sin one way or another. Like, it's, we got to be okay with this. But his grace, the realities of his grace should produce within our hearts such a gratitude that we say, no, I'm no longer looking to my sin for life. I'm looking to Christ and to Christ alone because the riches of his grace have been lavished upon me. And I don't even understand that, but I know it's true. And I'm going to continue to come to the endless well of this life-giving grace every day of my life. And as believers, we would be wise to do so. Because that's where we're going to be filled again with the hope, the love, the peace, the joy, all the things that God promises to those who are in Christ. Verse 8 begins like this, that we have forgiveness by the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight. All wisdom and insight. So the grace of God is the wisdom of God. The, 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 the grace that he has bestowed on us through the cross is his revealed wisdom and the, the greatest wisdom that this world has ever seen. And to the world, when they hear the message of the gospel, they say, that's crazy. That's foolishness. How could you believe that fairy tale? And yet Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that this is the power of God for salvation. He says this in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do you find yourself boasting in? What do you find yourself looking to for wisdom What are you trying to prove in your life? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you think matters most? Paul says, if you're in Christ, all wisdom and knowledge is yours. That's it. That means that the foolish, most foolish person in this world, the most ignorant person on the planet can know the cross of Christ and be the wisest person on the planet. It's amazing. And Paul tells us, look, if you're going to boast in anything, if you're going to take pride in anything, look to the cross. Look to what God did on your behalf. Because that is the only place that we can say with confidence, I am redeemed. That is the only place we look and can say with confidence, I have redemption now. It's mine now. And yet, we don't fully have it. You and I, if we are in Christ, we are still waiting the grand finale. Our redemption is still to come. Does anyone here like to blow stuff up? Does anyone here like exploding things? I've loved, I love fire and explosions. And anyway, uh, I love fireworks and, and uh, I love 4th of July. I love taking my kids out and seeing the fireworks. And you know, when the fireworks, when it starts, it captivates you, right? It's like, oh, explosions, light, color. It's like, wow, this is awesome. But it goes on for like 15, 20 minutes, you know, and you're like, okay, like this is cool, this is cool, and it's still cool, but your kids can get distracted and whatnot. But you know the moment where there is no distraction? It's the grand finale. It's the grand finale. At that moment, I'm not looking around to see what my kids are doing because their eyes are glued to the sky. And they're just like, whoa. Nothing else matters right now. I'm completely captivated by what is going on. And that is a picture of the redemption that we have to come. That is what it is going to be like. Nothing in this world will compare. We won't even think about anything else because we'll be so consumed with what is happening when the glory of Christ is finally revealed in its fullness. Do you look forward to that day? Are you looking forward to it with eager anticipation? Paul praises God for our future redemption. And he tells us that is when everything is united to Christ, verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Earth. I love the way uh, the, the New Living Translation puts verse 10. It says this, And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. 
What that tells us is that one day everything will be made right. One day everything will make sense to us. And one day everything will be made new. It's a promise from the living God who spoke us into existence. We can take that to the bank. But here's the deal. The world that we currently live in is chaotic. I don't need to tell you that. You look at any news feed, any social media feed, it's crazy. This world is crazy. It is broken. It is dying. It is decaying. It is sad. But our hope is in the reality that one day Christ will come and he will make all things new. This is your greatest hope. Your greatest hope is not in the next job. It's not in a bigger paycheck. It's not in a bigger house. Your greatest hope is in the eternal dwelling that God has promised to you if you are in Christ. That's where our hope is anchored. And that is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then he goes on to say, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? We are if we are in Christ. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're experiencing. Pain. But it says not only the creation, but we ourselves. The church then and now. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is that already not yet dynamic of our faith. We're already adopted in Christ, we're already saints, we're already children of God, and yet we're not yet adopted, we're not yet redeemed to the fullness of what is going to happen. It's mysterious, but it's hopeful both for today and for tomorrow. And our call as believers is is what Paul just said, wait. Wait. But in our waiting, we wait patiently. We wait eagerly. And we wait with hope. A good friend of mine named Scott Hubbard works uh, for a ministry called Desiring God. And he's been writing some articles for them and and he, and he finished uh, this article he wrote about ways to pray when you're waiting for something. And, uh, and this is how he concluded his article. He says this, In this world, we always wait for something. A spouse, a job, a child, a prodigal, release from depression or financial freedom. But for Christians, the tremors of something greater rumble beneath every one of these good gifts. We are waiting for something better than this world can give. We are waiting for a new world where righteousness bursts through the air and sky. We are waiting for a new body finally delivered from death and decay. 
We are waiting for a new power when sin will lose its last hold on us. But most of all, we are waiting for our King, Jesus Christ. One sight of his face will banish sadness forever. One note from his voice will swallow every disappointment in his, in this life. One moment in his presence will cast all of our pain into the depths of the sea. We need God to remind us of what we're really waiting for. Underneath all of our waiting in this world is a hope that cannot disappoint. And one day soon our king will come and no one who waits for him will be put to shame. Does that fill your heart with hope? Does that give you perspective in the midst of the daily grind? Does that change the way you look at your life? God made us. Jesus bought us. And Jesus is coming again to take us home. Let's, let's pray. What appropriate words. Thank you, Jesus. What else can we say? As ones that did nothing to come into existence and as ones who did nothing but to receive God's grace unto salvation. That's why we can sing amazing grace. That's why grace is so amazing because it's been lavished on us. And Father, I just want to know the depths. I want to know more. I want to know more of you. I want to know more of your grace and your love. And so I just pray for every single person in this room that as we continue to worship you through observing communion, that you would once again remind us who we are. Remind us what you have done and remind us of what is to come. Jesus, we love you. Our our hope, our trust, everything we have is in you. And we confess and acknowledge that today. And it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, as we transition into a time of communion, I think communion, again, it it, it gives us this picture of the already not yet dynamic. Uh, When we come to the table, we recognize, hey, Christ's body has already been broken. His blood has already been shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's ours. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we declare his death until he comes. It's as we get up, as we partake in communion, we say, yes, I need the blood of Christ for my sin. We also say, Christ is coming to take me home. Where one day we are going to feast at the table of grace in heaven for all of eternity. That's our hope. That is our future. And so if you're here this morning, if you're in Christ, I want to encourage you to approach the throne of grace through communion. If you feel like there's things in your life, sin that makes you unworthy, you know, all you have to do is confess that. All you have to say is, yeah, God, I agree with you. That is wrong. That isn't in line with your ways. But come to the table of grace and partake as we continue to look to our God and Savior. And so how we do communion here is there's four stations. We just ask you, as the Lord leads you, as we play this song, you just get up from your seat, head over to one of the tables, grab a cracker, just dip it in the juice. You can partake of it right there. And I'd encourage you maybe just as you're taking it, just to say, I am redeemed. Just speak that truth to yourself that, God, I am redeemed by your blood. This is my only hope. And so as you're ready, as the Lord leads you, feel free to get up, go to the table, partake of communion, head back to your seat, and we'll continue to worship the Lord through song.